You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, we learn more about the smile zones at Markham Stouffville Hospital. Also on the show, a preview of the Electric Wheelchair Hockey Championships. But we begin with reminders about water safety from the Life Saving Society. Afwaba starts us off. With the ongoing heat that we are going to be getting throughout the summer here in York Region and across Ontario, of course, people will be flocking to the beaches and to pools. Sadly, though, there have been an increase in drownings, uh, whether it be at backyard pools or in beaches. And so we want to give the public or residents the tips that they need to make sure that whether you're in a pool in your backyard or heading to the beach, that everyone is safe in the water. Joining me to chat today is the Public Education Director for the Life Saving Society, Barbara Byers. Thank you, Barbara, for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's first let the listeners know, what is the uh, Life Saving Society? Yeah, the Life Saving Society is a charity, and uh, our sole focus is on uh, drowning prevention. Uh, we are a Commonwealth organization that have been around for over 100 years, and we uh, do our, our drowning prevention work in many ways. Uh, one, uh, the most probably one of the most well-known ways is through our training programs. So we have uh, parent and taught lessons. We have uh, uh, learn to swim lessons. We have life-saving, life-guarding, and first aid uh, classes. So all lifeguards in Ontario will have been certified by the Life-Saving Society. So when you think of your bronze medallion or national lifeguard, those are courses that we teach. Um, one of the key areas that I focus on is... Um, in our public education work, recognizing that it's really important to reach out to the public with basic water safety information because many people uh, may never take a swimming lesson or um, a first aid class. So we want to make sure the public are aware of what they need to do to keep themselves safe. And so uh, my focus is on that education side. And one of the major uh, projects that I am responsible for is our Swim to Survive program, which is a a program that's offered during school time as well as, you know, off school time to teach uh, basic uh, survival swimming uh, skills to school-age children uh, throughout the province. Awesome. Okay. And I know you just touched on something very important there, which is um, water safety education. Uh, and uh, we don't have to sort of go through the details, but we've seen there's been an increase of uh, water or pool-related incidents or, sadly, drownings that have occurred across the GTA in a short amount of time. Um, maybe can you speak to us a little bit about that as to maybe why that may be? Is it because um, drownings can only take a couple of seconds? Um, is it maybe just uh, something that, you know, when they get in the water, it catches someone off guard and before you know it, they're in a distress type of situation? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think uh, when you look at uh, situations with young children or children of any age, 
um, I think many people are surprised to hear that drowning is silent, that um, unlike movies where you see someone waving their arms saying, help me, I'm drowning, um, that's Hollywood, that's not uh, real life. So the reality is when a person is drowning, it is a process that happens very quickly and their airway um, fills with uh, water so they can't speak and they can't breathe. So um, what it means is it's silent. And so, therefore, if you take your eyes off your child or your um, family member, you may think, oh, I'll hear them. I'll hear them if they get in trouble. They'll call out for me, but they won't. So uh, I think in many cases, people are very surprised to hear that it's silent and also that uh, it happens very quickly. When the airway fills with water, you can't breathe. So it could be 20 seconds. And so, therefore... Um, uh, sadly, every year there are cases where someone uh, drowns because uh, the family member or friend was looking one direction thinking they would hear them. So that's kind of one one thing that um, happens. The other is certainly with young children um, who have that curious, inquisitive, you know, almost magnetic attraction to water if they're at the beach or at a cottage or a campsite or a pool, if they see that glistening, sparkling water, they want to get there. And they uh, obviously are too young to have the respect or the skills to keep themselves um, safe if they end up in the water. So that is, that's often um, what happens is that a young child is in the, in the pool or the beach or in the, in the lake and the parents think they're somewhere else. So in that case, it's that controlling, restricting, blocking off water until um, the parents or caregivers are right there with them. Um, when it comes to swimming, I think it's often a classic case where um, many people are um, maybe don't accurately estimate their swimming skills uh, and uh, compare it to what kind of water environment they're in. So you may say, oh, I'm a swimmer. I can jump in a pool and get to the side. Well, you know, it's not that far, and, and you can uh, usually dog paddle or get yourself to the side. But if you're in a big lake, and it's deep, and it's cold, and there's waves, and you're a ways out, that's a much more challenging uh, situation. So I think many people just maybe are impulsive or um, optimistic about what their swimming skills are, and then they get in a situation, and they realize they are, you know, way over their head and too far out, and, and then they start to panic. Okay. And so um, I've been hearing, or I've also seen, uh, several incidents um, that have been reported whereby it seems like somebody is in a distress situation, and somebody who may be outside looking in thinking, I should go in and jump and help. Mm -hmm. Is that necessarily the right thing to do if, if you can't swim, if you're not even confident in your swimming skills and you see someone in distress or not even in, you can't see them because, as you mentioned, it happens so quickly, but something happens uh, in, in that case. What is the proper thing that they should do? Well, the first thing they should do is get help. Um, ask someone to call 911 and get emergency help right away. So time is of the essence in a situation like that. If you are a non-swimmer or a very weak swimmer and you're in a big body of water, you should not go in the water because they, there's very high probability that you can get into difficulty or, or drown yourself while you're trying to rescue someone. So if you're at a beach or a waterfront area, 
um, just say, can anybody swim? Does anybody know how to rescue? Is anybody a lifeguard? Just like you might say, you know, in another situation, is there a doctor? Is there a nurse here? You should ask for someone who has some skills and um, and rely on them to do the work because they, they know how, how to do rescue. If you're a strong swimmer, but say you're not trained as a lifeguard, but you're a strong swimmer, you could uh, certainly attempt a rescue, but what I always want to reinforce is to is to think about what if you ever saw a movie or even in a real situation see a lifeguard do a rescue. They never go out empty-handed. They don't go all by themselves without anything. They always take something with them. Uh, they take a buoyant aid. They might take a rescue can or a rescue tube or a ring boy or something. And the reason they do um, is so that they can extend to that person who is in trouble in the water. So in a in the case of you rescuing someone, if you take something like, say, there's a pool noodle on the beach, say there's a, uh, a life jacket, say there's a cooler lid or something like that that's um, buoyant, and you take that with you, it'll help you in two ways. One, if you're going out to rescue them and you get tired partway, you can hold on to that and sort of catch your breath, and it will keep you above the water. You won't be sinking, and you'll have your airway out. And when you do go to rescue them, you can extend it to them so they can grab onto it, and that'll be a great relief to them as they were panicking in the water. And so it will be something for them to hold on to and get that great relief rather than holding on to you because there are... Um, stories every year where the person who was rescuing the person in trouble drowned because the the person who was drowning um, grabbed onto them and sort of pressed them down as they tried to get their own airway out of the water. So don't go alone. Don't go with nothing. Take something with you. But most of all, the first thing is to have someone call and get help because if... Uh, Hopefully, if you're in a, an area where there is some EMS service, they can get there very, very quickly, and time is uh, is very important. We've seen drownings that have occurred um, in backyard pools. What are some general tips you can give us? Well, I'd say number one is um, ideally we recommend is having four-sided fencing around the pool. You can get four, you can get a portable fencing. So the municipal laws usually allow the four side to be the house. The, the good thing about that is your neighbors can't get in because your house is the barrier, but the bad news is the people who live at the house um, don't have that fence or that barrier between uh, the indoors where the house is and the pool. So um, we, we always recommend four-sided fencing and uh, the access point to the pool having a self-closing, self-latching gate so it swings shut when... Um, when a person goes through so it's not left open. Um, we always recommend layers of protection because even if you do have the fence with the gate, there's always that uh, worry about human error. Someone may leave the gate open. So um, if you have layers of protection, and layers of protection would be um, an alarm on the door, so the, the exit from the house and when the door opens, uh, extra locks on the door that are high so uh, children can't reach it, um, motion detectors in the pool uh, so that uh, they're put on when uh, the plan is for no one to go swimming. Uh, those kinds of things in and of themselves, you know, there could be a tragedy, but if you have multiple layers of protection there, uh, that reduces the incidence of, uh, of a drowning and more, most specifically of a, a young toddler getting to the pool area uh, without someone there. Um, the other is that when you are in the pool area, um, 
it's really important that non-swimmers and uh, young young children wear um, wear life jackets. Like life jackets is something we all think of foreboding, but they're really um, important for young children, as those curious, inquisitive toddlers don't uh, have respect or or skills to go in the water. So if you put a life jacket on those toddlers, that's another layer of protection. So if they end up falling in. Um, the life jacket will turn them right side up and their face out of the water. And uh, when I say life jackets, I don't mean water wings or those floaty bathing suits or those uh, uh, inner tube things that they can sit in because uh, a life jacket has the flotation to keep their face out of the water. All of those other things like water wings and those bathing suits and so on, that may keep them floating a bit, but if they fall in the water with water wings, um, they're not going to turn right side up and toddlers have a heavier head than we do, um, you know, proportionate to their body. So the risk is that they are face first in the water and their arms are floating and their face is not. And and I know the temptation is when parents go out looking, they see 99 cents for water wings and, you know, $25 for a life jacket. And, and they think, well, why should I buy a life jacket when the water wings are just as good? But the water wings have on the package, you know, this is not a life-saving device. They are toys. All of those things are toys whereas life jackets are life-saving devices. And I guess the other point is that um, you really need to designate as a parent who's in charge of each child. And parents need to, in essence, uh, act as a lifeguard for their children. So say you have two kids, two parents, and one of the parents is going in the house to make lunch or, or do something. That parent should say to another adult, okay, I'm going in the house will you watch um, little Johnny because uh, I won't be able to do so. And uh, that way that parent knows, okay, my job is to watch little Johnny. So you can't just assume that everyone's watching. I mean, there's the classic case of the pool party with, you know, 20 adults and 10 kids. And you say, well, this is a great ratio. There's two parents for every child. But the reality is the parents are talking to each other. They're having conversations. They're not watching the kids in the pool. So you really need to designate who is watching each child um, in the pool area. And um, I guess that the last thing is that we know and science tells us that we can't do two things well. We can't look at our phone and watch our children. We can't read a book and watch our children in the pool. We can't um, put sunscreen on another child and, and watch our children. We only do one thing at a time. And something as important as watching our kids in the pool is more important than all of those other things. So uh, we need to be dedicated, keep our eyes on them all the time, and uh, keep them within arm's reach and, um, and just focus on that one thing. All right, perfect. Uh, Barbara Byer is the uh, Public Education Director with Life Saving Society. Thank you so much for the tips. And, of course, um, just reminding uh, residents to, of course, always keep your eyes on those who are in the water because it's just a moment of se- matter of seconds and everything can change. So, Barbara, thank you so much. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next story takes us inside Markham Stouffville Hospital and their efforts to make a hospital stay just a little bit better. Jim Lang with the Smile Zone. Markham Stouffville Hospital is one of the leading health centers of the province uh, filled with amazing people, uh, volunteers, nurses, but especially doctors. And I am thrilled to be speaking to their chief of pediatrics, 
at Markham Stowell Hospital, Dr. Deepa Grewal. Doctor, how are you? I'm great this morning. Well, as well you should be. Uh, you do, obviously, you and your team do amazing work at the Markham Stowell Hospital, and you have partnered with an organization I know very well, because every year I take part in the Smile Zone the Charity Celebrity Golf Tournament, and uh, recently we had another great tournament, raised a lot of money, and Markham Stowell Hospital is opening a number of the new Smile Zones, which is a great thing for kids on a, a long stay in a hospital, isn't it? Absolutely. We are just absolutely thrilled um, and so excited to work with Smile Zone and the Smile Zone Foundation. They have been able to come into the hospital um, and partner with our team, um, including some of our young patients and their uh, and parents, to help us decide on better ways to make make our hospital look more inviting and friendly. Uh, to children. So it's been a great journey we've been on, and I'm uh, I'm thrilled that we've been able to open up our space today. And doctor, and for people who don't realize it listening right now, um, the smiles and what they do is they go into sort of a, like a bare sort of antiseptic room in a hospital, and for kids who are going to be there a long time, there's video games, there's murals, there's, it's a fun, inviting place. It makes them feel like kids again. You got it. You know, any space with uh, bare walls, uh, it can seem a little bit daunting to kids. Um, just think, in the first 20 seconds, you've got your first impression of a place. Hmm. And this is where things have changed with Smile Zone's partnership. So we have murals that are beautiful and colorful with um, vivid primary colors, scenes that are just engaging, whether it's um, a Canadiana scene with a beaver, moose, and a lot of uh, forestry behind it, to our underwater themes. Um, it's just so impressive with what they've done to our space. And it's not just the colors and the murals. We've got technology that they've uh, included. We've got uh, standing iPads. Um, we have something that I think is one of my favorites of the, the new space, and it's called the GTAC. And it's uh, one of those floor uh, projections oh. that is interactive. And so uh, we have that in our uh, pediatric outpatient clinic. So a space that can see up to 15,000 kids in a year now has got a great interactive floor projection. And I got to say, kids are loving it. Speaking with Dr. Deepa Grewal, the Chief of Pediatrics at Markham Stowell Hospital, one of the top pediatricians in the GTA in New York region. And, Doctor, I, I would think from a scientific standpoint, having these smile zones and having this room set up the way you described will help in the healing both physically and emotionally and mentally of these young kids. Well, you know what it really does is it helps to decrease their stress and their anxiety. And that's the purpose. It's not to change the care they provide. We have an amazing group of nurses, respiratory therapists, our allied health workers, um, our doctors. The team is the same, but what's changed is the environment they're receiving their care. And so it makes our jobs easier. When I come into uh, a clinic room and a child's actually smiling because they've been playing on a um, uh, on an iPad outside on an educational game that's really caught their attention, they're, they're easier to engage and they're so much easier um, uh, to relax and, and eventually help them with their medical visits. No matter how good you are, doctor, I mean, the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, there are some times where the children have to stay longer than the parents or even the child would like to in the hospital. And that has to be tough, not just in the kid, but the parents you're dealing with. We have to tell them that 
their young son or daughter might have to stay at Markham Stobel Hospital to two, three, or four weeks or more until they're fully healthy. Um, we certainly do have kids that have a, a slightly longer uh, length of stay. Um, a parent is always with them in the hospital. And, you know, these spaces can make that stay less scary. Um, simple things like a beanbag chair, uh, a chair in a room where um, an example comes to mind where one of our kids had had a, a bit of a lengthy stay and lots of procedures and really just didn't want to get up. And that beanbag chair became the thing that made a difference. Hmm. All of a sudden, the child said, you know what, I don't mind getting up and sitting in that cozy chair. And it was the first in a new uh, a new um, direction the child's care was going. So we were able to, uh, to engage them and get them moving a little bit faster because the space was more inviting. And I've got to say, we've, we've seen the impact on so many kids, but here's what surprises you, is that it's really impacting our staff as well. So our staff are smiling when they walk into these brighter rooms. They're smiling with the projections. I got to say, when I walk into the clinic, I just got to play on that projection for 30 seconds before I start my day. It's it's just wonderful. Can I ask what you play? Uh, it changes, actually. Uh, so it, it rotates. There's soccer. There's um, an underwater scene. There's <laughs> hockey, basketball. Um, there's... Uh, uh, a projection with world flags uh, that you get to to uh, move around. Every 30 seconds, it seems like there's a new projection that you can uh, be interactive with. So I don't think I've gone through them all, so I've, I've got uh, some work to do there. <laughs> Markham Stowell Hospital is in very good hands with the Chief of Pediatrics, Dr. Deepa Grewal, who's partnered with Markham Stowell Hospital and the Smile Zone Foundation to create these beautiful new rooms in the hospital for kids and long stays as the doctor mentioned, filled with many different things and colorful activities to make the children, as, as you say, doctor, smile. And those smiles probably are worth the weight in gold every time you walk in and have to deal with those patients. They really are. And, um, you know, I really want to extend a huge thank you to SmileZone, but also to uh, the, our donor, the Michael Mutchison Memorial Trust, for creating this amazing space for our patients uh, and for the hospital. So we, uh, we're we blessed to be um, uh, supported so well with the community, and, and we appreciate all the ongoing support the community provides. Well, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm fr- you know, friends, not close friends, but friends with Adam Graves, a former NHLer who is one of the founders of the Smile Zone Foundation. Yeah. And uh, he would be just tickled to death. I'm going to text him later about our conversation. He's going to be thrilled to hear this kind of feedback because that's why they do what they do every year, to, to hear these kind of stories. Absolutely. And I think it, it serves um, the real goal of the Smile Zone uh, Foundation to create spaces uh, for kids, uh, with kids, really to, to make their um, experience that much better. Uh, and I'm so happy that we're, we're seeing it uh, definitely to fruition. It's uh, an exciting uh, venture. Um, I'm so excited our space has changed. Oh, me too. Uh, forget Grey's Anatomy. I want to do Markham Stowell Hospital Anatomy and talk to you more, Doctor. This has been a real thrill. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to playing in our space and uh, and helping all the kids that do come through. I love it. We'll do. All the best. Take care, Doctor. Thank you. Have a great day.
You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Over to Rob Daniels now and a preview of next weekend's Electric Wheelchair Hockey Championships at the Pan Am Center in Markham. How's it going? It is Rob Daniels here inside the show called The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Heard Saturday mornings at 9 and Sundays at 5. And any time to get the playback is over at 1059theregion.com. Joining me on the show this weekend is John Blackburn. He is from the Canadian Electric Wheelchair Hockey Association. And uh, there is a big event happening next weekend in Markham. It is the CEWHA Championships. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes today. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure. We've got our uh, the Canadian Electric Wheelchair uh, Hockey Association, our national championship. Uh, it runs uh, July 26th to the 28th at the uh, Pan Am Centre in uh, Markham. We've got teams uh, from across Canada that, that will be landing in Markham and competing for our national championship, which uh, which occurs uh, every two years. That that's fantastic, and there and there's going to be teams from all uh, like like which specific cities? Is it uh, just a couple, or literally the entire country, like all the major cities? Uh, well, we've got uh, we've got divisions uh, in um, Ottawa. Toronto, London, Winnipeg, and Calgary, and teams uh, from uh, those uh, cities uh, minus Calgary, unfortunately, can't make it. But uh, so we've got uh, two teams from Ottawa, two teams from uh, Toronto, London, Winnipeg that will be uh, coming uh, to um, to Markham and uh, competing for our national championship. And it's uh, right now uh, I'll be actually going down next week to pick our trophy up. It's actually being displayed in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So those players will uh, will be in Markham and competing for the uh, the CEWHA National uh, Championship. That is absolutely fantastic. How often do they do this? Uh, is it every year the national championships? Every five years? How does it work? No, every it's every two years. Uh, the last one, when 2017, was held in Ottawa at uh, Carleton University. So uh, you know, after our uh, nationals, we will. Uh, we put it out there, and the teams will bid uh, to to try and host uh, the national championship. And uh, so, yeah, the next one will be uh, in 2021. And uh, I think uh, Calgary has, has expressed uh, some interest. So, um, yeah, we just uh, you know, once once we wrap this uh, tournament up, then we put it out uh, to, to tender and uh, and see who wants to host. And as far as well, from my understanding, I'm uh, I've, I've been hearing rumblings that a, a few NHL veterans will be in attendance for the opening ceremonies in Markham this weekend. Who can you reveal uh, who's going to be on hand for the uh, the national championships? Well, we've uh, we're lucky. Uh, first off, we've got uh, the mayor of Markham, uh, Frank Scarpetti, will be attending, and we've got Mary. Uh, Ning. She is a m- uh, member of parliament for Markham and Thornhill. And then we've, uh, we've put the uh, invite. We're hoping that uh, a few NHLers, uh, Gary Roberts, and we've uh, invited Steve Stamkos and, and uh, Connor McDavid. And uh, we've actually uh, been in discussion and talked to um, Don Cherry. And so we're hoping uh, that a few of these uh, NHL celebrities will be in Markham and, uh, and helping out for our uh, 
ceremonies, which will be happening on uh, July 26 at uh, 10 a.m. at the Pan Am Center in Markham. That is huge. I mean, you got all these uh, NHL dignitaries, public figures that are going to be a part of this. And it's fantastic, too, for uh, these uh, these kids, these teenagers, anyone that is uh, taking part in this that are that are the the athletes themselves, because they you know, they they get to get out of the house uh, and and be a part of something um, that is very special. It's recreational. They make uh, they form friendships over the years, and these are long lasting friendships. Uh, is there one specific moment that has stuck out over the years um, being involved in this, where one of the participants told you something very meaningful of of what the league meant to them, or maybe it changed their life? Uh, well, absolutely, and I think that's the, the biggest thing, Rob, is, you know, when you sit down and you talk to some of these athletes and, uh, and what, what the, what the playing, um, power hockey means to them and the friendships they've created over, you know, the, the last you know, three, four, five and up to 20 years is amazing. And, and I think the biggest impact that's had, uh, on myself is, uh, is just how they feel about the, the game. And, you know, they are athletes and they, uh, they, they compete and they compete at a high level. And, and it's just, it really is life changing. And, uh, so I think, you know, just talking to a, a few of the players and I think the, the, the biggest impact are, are the new players that, that join the league and, uh, and experience it. Uh, they, uh, they really, uh, when you, when you talk to them, they, they, this uh, this game uh, has has changed their life, and like you had mentioned, it's uh, it gets them out of the house. They get to meet new friends. It's social, you know. We uh, during the during the year from uh, from October to uh, to April, they play every uh, you know once a once a week. So they get together and make bonds and friendships that'll last forever. So good to hear. And the event, uh, the championships, the, is it? free to the public or is there a charge to be in attendance no absolutely free so we welcome everybody uh, you know locally or, or from across the gta they're welcome to stop by check out this great sport these uh, athletes of all ages men and women uh, that uh, that will be you know competing for our national championship it's uh, it's an amazing uh, amazing sport, and anybody that stops by and uh, and has a look and watches a few of our games is uh, is hooked. So we welcome uh, we welcome everybody out. Uh, like I said, free of charge. We've got uh, we've got a website, and it's the uh, cewha.ca, and it will uh, you know it has uh, um, you know all the information about the the league and how long we've been in existence. It has a little blurb on each uh, each division. And it'll also have uh, have our nationals, so it'll have the the games, times which each uh, team plays, and uh, you know, obviously who who will be attending. So again, uh, we uh, we welcome everybody and anybody to come out and, uh, and check out our great sport. This is the feed on one hundred five nine, the region where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including how residents in Aurora are concerned about a hydro project in their neighborhood. Sydney Bourguignon with the story. 
Recently, residents of Pinnacle Trail in Aurora have been concerned about the potential negative impacts that a project involving hydro poles may have in their surrounding area. I'm here with Pinnacle Trail resident Andrea Cariotis to find out what these concerns are and what the problem is with the project the Hydro One is spearheading. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Andrea. Thank you for having me. So I just was wondering if you could explain to me what Hydro One is looking to do in your area and how did this issue begin? Uh, basically, they are looking to um, run a power source for Metrolink. So uh, one morning, uh, I was looking out my yard, and I noticed that there's these stakes out in the yard and you know, with a red line going through it, and it said hydro on it. So I'm like, okay, I'm just wondering what that was for. So I was talking to other neighbors, and one of my neighbors said that um, there were some gentlemen in the back doing some work and saying that, Hydro One is going to be putting up uh, posts to run electrical wiring, uh, hydro lines for Metrolinx. So when we heard this, we made some phone calls, and there were some surveyors out in the back, and I um, was talking to them, and they basically said that, uh, yeah, their markers for poles that are going up to uh, for electrical for Metrolinx. And I basically said, well, that's a little bit too close to our houses. And they basically said, well, you know, it's a marker and they're within their legal right to have them there. So a neighbor and I went out. We measured how far it is from our property line, and it's 18 feet away from our property line. So, you know, obviously we don't want something like that in our backyard. We already have a hydro tower in the back. And for them to add extra wiring and hydro, like a a double layer of, of wires, we don't want that. It's uh, it's a health concern. It's also going to devalue the property, you know, our, our home's value. And, um, you know, we just don't want that. Right now we have green space. So if they go in and put these hydro towers, we're going to have an eyesore to look at. And the biggest concern, again, is, is our health. Like, what's that, you know, what's that going to do for, for our kids out here and for us, you know? So, yeah, we, we're a little bit upset and we're, you know, in an uproar and we're trying to do everything we can to stop this project from happening. So what actions have the residents of Pinnacle Trail taken to try and stop this? Have you been in contact with, in contact, sorry, with Hydro One or Metrolinx? Yes, actually what happened was uh, we did call uh, Hydro One because the surveyors gave me uh, a person who was, I guess, involved in the project. So we reached out to her, and she has called us back and basically said, you know, it's a preliminary. They're just staking out the area, and uh, they're just doing, right now, just in the preliminary stages that they're doing some work. So what happened was after we got that, we called the town of Aurora. I called the MPP's office. I called the MP's office. where I did speak with the mayor of, uh, of Aurora as well. We called the newspaper. I called the banner, um, the Auroran. So our our concerns uh, were put in the media, and it seems like as soon as it hit the media and we all started calling Hydro One, they sent us a community notice basically saying that they are listening and, um, you know, that they're going to be looking at possible uh, relocation. It's in the preliminary stages, and once they have a definite plan, then they're going to be in contact with the community and they're going to let us know. And then I guess then they're going to have like a meeting, a town meeting where we can express our concerns. 
but I mean, we don't want to wait until it's too late. Um, yesterday, I had a delegation um, with the town of Aurora, and um, it was positive feedback from what we got. But the, the the counselors did also say that this is a provincial issue, so they're going to do what they can to help us. They're going to do what they can to oppose this plan and have it hopefully you know directed somewhere else. But again, we are on the wake <laughs> on what's going to happen once they have definite plans. And if the plans end up going through, will you guys continue to fight against putting up the hydro poles? Oh yeah, yeah. We we're not gonna we're not gonna take this lightly. Like we're gonna do whatever we can to you know oppose this. You know there there's other options. You know they can run the hydro you know through existing lines. They can run the power source you know from um, the train tracks. They already have hydro poles and hydro lines up there if it's for Metrolink. They can run it through non-residential fields, not in the fields where people have their homes. You know, and in the back we have a green space where the hydro corridor runs. There's a, there's a soccer field. There's walking paths. We have some wildlife back here. So, you know, if they add a double layer of hydro lines, I mean, what, what does that do to everything back there? You know, it's, yeah, I don't, I, I, I just don't think it's, it's feasible to have it where they have staked the markers. And would residents of Pinnacle Trail be supportive of if they were to put the hydro poles, but to have them underground? If they can do them underground, and again, it's not a health concern or health issue, that, um, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, we're fine with that, you know, and a few of us neighbors, we've gone together. And so even if they have to pay a little extra in our tax, we can do that because, you know, it goes to something that's important, you know. But I think them having an option to run it underground, I think it's expensive. So they're looking probably at something that isn't going to be as expensive and putting up some poles and some wires is probably the most inexpensive way of doing it, I'm assuming. Exactly. So based on what Metrolinx and Hydro One has told you so far, are you guys satisfied with the way they're handling it thus far? Um, well, thus far, I think we had we made the noise, and then they sent us a community letter saying that um, they're gonna, you know, keep us in the loop as soon as they have a definite plans. But I think that they already have some plans already in play because if they didn't, why would surveyors come out, you know, and mark a territory? Why would they come out and survey? you know, the properties, if they don't already have a plan of where they want to run these hydro lines. So and Metrolinx hasn't really contacted anybody. Um, we've just been, you know, again, calling Hydro One, the community relations. Also, when I was at the meeting yesterday for when I presented my delegation, um, the mayor had a meeting with, um, I believe it was uh, Hydro One, and he asked them to come to the delegation last night, but they declined. So we're a little bit surprised at that, why they would decline it, but they must have their reasons. And just for our listeners, that meeting was on July 16th, correct? Correct, yes, July the 16th, and it is, um, the video is available through the town of Aurora, and also we have a, a Facebook page on Aurora, and um, it's been posted the, the delegation and the meeting has been posted on the Facebook page as well. But uh, the listeners can also, like I said, go to the Town of Aurora web, website and they can find, um, 
find the link through there as well. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us on the feed today, and uh, it was great to have you. Thank you very much for uh, for taking the time, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that with this being aired, other residents maybe can you know join the fight with us, and you know, hopefully, it'll put a stop to these lines coming in, uh, through our backyard. Um, also, just to let you know that uh, they told us that the line is going from St. John's down to Mulock. So, you know, it's going to be a long stretch, and a lot of residents are going to be impacted by this. And sorry, I'm not sure if you mentioned it already, but I know you guys have a petition going around. Uh, how many signatures yeah. do you have roughly on that petition right now? Right now I have 51. That's just that's just for the residents that back on to the corridor um, on Pinnacle Trail. We are 44 semi-homes and two detached homes. Um, I've had other residents that are across the street who are also concerned on this project, and they want to also come and sign the petition. I've had emailed, uh, people have been emailing me because when I ran the story in the uh, the paper, they've attached my email address, and I've had people contact me that they're concerned and also want to sign the petition. So, um, like I said, at this point, we have 51 signatures, but I know in time it's going to grow to a lot more. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it so much. And if listeners uh, wanted to find the petition, where can they go? Uh, they can um, contact me directly, I guess, through my email address, uh, andreacariotis at gmail.com. All right, perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joining us next on the feed, MP Deb Schult from King Vaughan and MP Jennifer O'Connell from Pickering Uxbridge. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, It's a sir. pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the announcement you made or a stop that you made earlier this week at the Lullaboo Nursery and Child Care Center. Well, uh, earlier this week, uh, I'm here visiting with uh, MP Schult to talk about the Canada Child Benefit. And starting on Saturday, actually, um, so that's the benefit. Yep. Yep. The benefit is actually going to increase for the second time. So part of our commitment for the Canada Child Benefit was, one, to make it simpler, tax-free, and more generous for families who need it most. And part of that was to index it as well. So it's increased once before, and now it's increasing again, which is going to help families with the continuing rising costs of, of raising young children. Absolutely. And so I appreciate Deb having me here and introducing me to some of her youngest constituents. <laughs> <laughs> and so how much money are we talking about? So uh, families are getting, the maximum benefits that families can get for a child under six is 6496 And for a child under six, between six to 17, it's uh, 5481 So it's a significant amount of money. And just to put it in context for the, the families in my riding, we are uh, providing over $7 million a month to about 14,000 families in my riding. And uh, that's a tremendous amount of money that is coming in and helping families to, with this very challenging uh, affordability uh, in the riding. Absolutely. And affordability is an issue, uh, you know, across the region, across the country. What do you say to those listeners who may say to you, why now? Why these perks at this time as we're heading into the fall election? Is that, is that what we're doing? Is we're, we're buying votes? And I've heard that at the door. And it's kind of sad uh, to hear that because 
because we promised that we would make sure that we rose the uh, Canada Shell benefit to keep up with the rising costs of affordability. And so we're just doing what we said we were going to do, but we're actually doing it earlier because we found we we have the ability to be able to do that with the, the good economy that we have going right now. We've been able to do it earlier than we planned, and we've been able to do it now twice. So we said we were trying to make life more affordable. Very hard to say that if they're losing ground to the cost of living. So we're keeping it up with the cost of living. I think we're doing what we promised we would do for Canadians. Yeah, I'll just add to that. Um, You know, this is the second increase. And so one of the biggest criticisms that we heard under the previous government's um, child benefit was one that it was taxable. So, you know, I had families in my riding, I'm kind of next door in Durham region, where, you know, it was pushing them into a different tax bracket and it wasn't actually providing more money. And so one of the things we said, we're going to make it tax free and we're going to index it similar to what Deb was talking about. And this is the second time we've been able to raise it. So it's not about the election. It's about keeping pace exactly as Deb was talking about with cost of living, which is always what we set out to do. And what the feedback was from Canadians was that when you get these benefits, that can be great. But if it's not keeping pace with the realities of the cost of living and us living in the GTA, we know exactly what that feels like. So this is really just continuing on the work that we told Canadians we would do. And I know we're talking about the cost of living and you're here to talk about the child care benefit. But there was a report earlier this week that talked about affordable housing, Mm -hmm. that if you make $20 an hour in the city of Toronto, for example, you are going to be hard-pressed to find um, a good place to live. How is this going to help people like that? Well, I'll just speak on a couple pieces, and then, Deb, maybe you can talk about the local aspect, too. But um, part of this investment is really to help, uh, especially young families. But in addition to that, housing prices in the GTA is something everybody is living with. We understand that. So in addition to the Canada Child Benefit, we have made historic investments in the national housing strategy. And part of that was specifically around rental housing, because in that report, um, it talked about, you know, the needs and the lack of rental housing. And so that's a really specific commitment that we're also making above and beyond the Canada Child Benefit. Um, We want to make sure with the Canada Child Benefit that families are not choosing between, you know, buying groceries or maybe their kids being able to go to camp. And when it comes to the price of housing, we see that as a growing issue. And so that's why we're making the investments and a broad range of investments to make sure we have a mix. And if I could pick up on that, because housing is such a critical issue for so many, it's the first that our government uh, recognized the housing crisis, and right away we got back in the game with the CMHC. So the previous government took them out of the mix, and that meant that those that wanted to create rental, Mm -hmm. do uh, co-op housing, some really creative ideas to bring people together and keep the cost of housing down, that was gone. There was no way that anybody could build a building without having some advanced financing. That often comes with condos. People get the down payment and they can build. If they don't have a, a, a vil- ability to get at low-cost um, financing, they, they can't do them. And that's why we did not see any development in rental housing, or very minimal, for about 10 years with the previous government. And we knew right away, if we're going to be able to solve some of these problems, we need to get more rental, we need to get more options for housing, affordable housing for people. And we got back in the game in unprecedented um, commitment uh, to that program. 
there's many other parts of that program that are helping people with affordability. We can get into to that if you want, but there's there's now taking the benefit that was given to a particular unit and making it portable. So people aren't stuck to a particular housing option. They can take that now uh, in, in the near future and move it to another location. So you can now rent where you have your job, where you have your needs, rather than having to try to find where that subsidized housing may be and then adjust your life to, sit, to suit that. So okay. there's a lot we're doing. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Now, the House of Commons adjourned in late June, but with the NAFTA ratification bill sort of in flux, do you think there's a chance that Parliament is going to be recalled this summer? You're going to be back there? I think that if if uh, if that isn't needed, we'll all be ready to do that. Uh, it really sets the st- we're following the stages with the states and how they're progressing with the bill uh, in their house, and uh, to see if there's progress being made there, we'll get called back and, and we'll do the work that we need to do. So what are you doing now? Um, because what about those constituents that say, "Wow, the House of Commons isn't sitting," and do they have the entire summer off? <laughs> what's uh, what's the plan for your summer? Well, I, I'd love to jump in just <laughs> yeah. if I can. Obviously, we're here with you. It's about communicating. Uh, to residents. A lot of us are at the doors talking to residents about what we've been doing over the last four years. I'm doing town halls. We're trying to wrap up some projects, get more funding for our community. These are all the things working with our partners. Uh, I've been just doing announcements, helping businesses uh, with with, an, with uh, funding. So there's tremendous work that's going on and we're delighted to be back in the ridings because obviously this is where, where we need to be and so we're happy to be here working. Yeah, I, I just think um, when it comes to, one of the biggest challenges to being an MP, frankly, is is the travel back and forth to Ottawa and, you know, home basically and your riding. So I find in the summer we do not only a lot of community events and community outreach, but we're also just meeting with constituents and kind of getting, making sure we're uh, staying in touch and, and understanding those needs. That's one of the challenges, although in Ontario we're not too far from Ottawa, but it is really nice to come back and be connected with your community again. And I find, I think we were kind of comparing ridings in the sense of how many festivals and things that are happening happening throughout the summer. So it's really nice to be able to be back and be able to participate in a way that when the house is sitting, uh, you know, really that's where you need to be. Absolutely. Um, do you both plan to run again this fall? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, okay. We are both running. <laughs> right. So if our listeners want to connect with you, how can they do that? So uh, they can certainly do it through email. So that would be deb.schuld at parl.gc.ca. They can call my office. I'm still operating as an MP before we, the writ drops. Uh, so that's uh, 905-303-5000 at the office. I have a wonderful team. We're all there to help help people. And uh, looking forward to hearing from the listeners. Jennifer? Well, I'm uh, over in Durham Region, so if any of your listeners need any help there, uh, same thing, feel free to email me, jennifer.oconnell at uh, parl.gc.ca, and uh, happy to connect. You have a great MP here in in Deb, and if you ever need anything, I'm sure she can help connect. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or even a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.